Now, what about Dennis Edney? Well, first of all, he's one of these lucky folks, as I am, to come from Dundee, Scotland. (laughs) And uh, Dundee, Scotland is also the home of the cartoon character Dennis the Menace, and I have a feeling that there's an element of Dennis the Menace uh, here, and... um, but we'll, we'll see when he, uh, he gets up here. He uh, is a Canadian defense lawyer based in Edmonton, Alberta, noted for his involvement in many high-profile and complicated cases, including being defense lawyer for Abdullah and Omar Khadr. Uh, they were captured uh, in the War of, on Terror uh, and uh, also for Fahim Ahmad in uh, 2010, Uh, in the Toronto terrorism case. Um, So you have to be tough on these, which is why he's a a good Dundonian. Now, he has appeared at all levels of the Canadian courts, including the landmark Supreme Court cases, uh, Canada, Minister of Justice against Codder, 2008 Supreme Court of Canada, uh, the Prime Minister uh, against uh, Codder is uh, 2009, Supreme Court of Canada, as well as the Queen against Fahim Ahmad, 2010 uh, Supreme Court of Canada. <clears throat> He's been uh, granted standing as an, uh, uh, in an amicus brief before the United States Supreme Court and uh, in the case Razzle against Bush, uh, and it is the Bush, 2002, he was also appointed as foreign attorney consultant uh, by the U.S. Pentagon to participate uh, in the military commission trial on Omar Khadr, or of Omar Khadr. A young Canadian detained uh, in uh, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Dennis received a prestigious 2008 National Pro Bono Award. That means he does it all for nothing, just the kindness of his heart. And I'm, I'm not being... He is a kind heart. He is a father, I, having heard him last night and spent the whole day yesterday coming back from uh, Calgary, that he is Omar Khadr's father, as far as things are going here. The one person who is willing to take the appropriate steps to get him, um, you know, first of all, back to Canada. Uh, so that is an important part of uh, his work, too. Um, and uh, he also is a recipient of the 2009 Human Rights uh, Medal, awarded by the Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia for work that has helped um, promote uh, and further human rights. So, without further ado, I'd, I'd ask uh, Dennis to come up here. And uh, he uh, doesn't have as good an accent as I do, uh, as a Dundee thing, uh, which is all for the good. And uh, anyway, Dennis, please come and talk to us. Well, thank you very much for inviting me here today. I'd just like to start off by saying in my experience, particularly as a Scotsman, there is no such thing as a free lunch. (laughs) And I particularly wish to thank Knud Peterson 
and Ian McKenna, a fellow, well, he's from Dundee, I'm from Lockheed, um, for being the driving force behind my attendance here today. The subject matter of Omar Kader, a young Canadian Muslim who had been detained in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba for the past eight years, is so extensive and so complex that my short talk this afternoon cannot do it proper justice. And so what I'm going to attempt to do today is to simply rush through an overview of my view on Omar Kader, story of Omar Kader, in the hope that I can do this in time to allow many of you to ask as many questions as you wish. And through questions, the Omar, Star Omar Kader story can be brought out even fuller. Because his story, I would suggest to you, touches upon so many issues, from the legal to the illegal, to the human to the inhuman. I could just simply sum it up and leave by saying that I have never before represented anyone who has been so badly abused and so abandoned by so many who should know better. The complexity of Omar's case with his expansive issues has taken up a great deal of our time and continues to do so. My co-counsel, Nate Whitland, and I have appeared in too many courts to mention. Twice in the Canadian Supreme Court for Omar and once in the U.S. Supreme Court in Russell versus Bush, as Ian referred to. And we have been in every court you can count, whether it's the federal court system in south of the border and the federal court system here in Canada. And of course, we have appeared in the multi-commission process in Guantanamo Bay. And I would say to you that in all these appearances in courts, we have been very, very successful. So I'm suggesting to you that maybe I'm a good lawyer. <laughs> but you don't want to hire me. Why? Because I have failed in at least 40 pre-trial applications in Guantanamo Bay. In all the years of fighting and struggling in Guantanamo Bay, we have not won one single pre-trial application leading up to Omar Kader's trial. So that either suggests that there's something faulty in the system or I'm just simply incompetent. And we have represented Omar Kader without any financial assistance whatsoever. And I think that's important you know that. Because justice doesn't come cheap, it doesn't come without hard work, it doesn't come at all. And we have been provided no financial assistance from any government, from any public body, from any human rights organization. We just simply have financed the challenge for Omar Kader out of our own savings and with the approval of our respective spouses. And why have we done that? We have done that because we believe his cause 
is a just cause. And if we walked away, if we abandoned him, who else would step up to take our place? And I can tell you that I have thought about leaving Omar Carter many times. It's taken up my time. It's eaten away my resources. It's almost a full-time job. But then I'm haunted, truly haunted, with the conditions that he's in, in this place called Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. So I can't walk away. Because, and I can't walk away because his story, I would suggest to you, is very much about how we, human beings, Canadian citizens, define ourselves and what we are prepared to stand up for. You know, terrorism, it certainly poses a threat today and one would be foolish not to recognise that all governments have an obligation to take effective measures to protect its citizens against acts of terrorism. And under international law, all governments have both a right and an obligation to protect its citizenry. And governments, including our own, are called upon to grapple and confront the difficult question of striking a balance between protection of our security and the protection of fundamental rights and freedoms. And it's not simply a utilitarian calculation of balancing the right to security of the many against the legal rights of the few. Because to do so would be to ignore the values upon which our democratic society is built. In the so-called war on terror, we are fighting for more than the safety of our citizens. Though that in itself is an objective, an important objective, we are also fighting for the preservation of our democratic way of life our right to freedom of thought and expression, and our commitment to the rule of law. Those liberties which we and our forefathers have won and fought hard for over the centuries, and which we must continue to hold dear. And those, in, those fundamental protections and fundamental rights include such things as the right to life, obviously the prohibition on torture, the presumption of innocence, the right to a fair trial by an independent and an impartial tribunal established by law. Yet one has to look no further than Guantanamo Bay to understand the erosion of the rule of law where individuals have been arbitrarily detained for years without being charged without access to the courts to challenge the detention, where there is no civilian oversight to, to the numerous incredible allegations of torture and abuse made by such respected organizations as the Red Cross, Amnesty International, the FBI, and by former torturers in Guantanamo Bay. You know, it wasn't that long ago, it was in January of 2002, we saw the first shocking images of human beings in an aircraft hooded and shackled for transportation across the Atlantic 
much as other human beings had been carried in slave ships 400 years ago. And we witnessed the captors of these anonymous anonymous human beings being humiliated and loaded, crouched in open cages and orange jumpsuits, all deliberately displayed for the world and you to see. But what they didn't show you, as bad as the cages are, is that there are three other prisons in Guantanamo Bay. And they're called Camp 5, Camp 6, and Camp 7. And as the Pentagon will tell you, these are designed for enhanced interrogation techniques, which is code for torture. And I've been in them. Well, that's not true. I've been in Camp 5 and Camp 6. And there's Camp 7. And we're not allowed to talk about Camp 7. Nobody mentions Camp 7. You can't even use that word when you're speaking to military in Guantanamo. Camp 7, I was told, they're toast, Mr. Redney, forget about it. And amongst them, in that hellhole of a place, is a young Canadian who was 15 years of age when he came there. And for the watching world, including ourselves here, no knowledge of international human humanitarian conventions were needed to understand that what you were witnessing was unlawful. This was not a manifestation of the Geneva Convention at work, nor was it a legal act of deportation or extradition. It was far worse. It was the unlawful transportation to a world outside the reach of law and intended to remain so. In that world, Guantanamo Bay and other prisons, crimes against inhumanity were to be carried out in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And I remind myself of my first meeting with Omar some years ago in conditions that continue to haunt me to this day. And I recall his pattern words to me, you will leave me, everybody does. Guantanamo Bay is an affront to the rule of law and it has been condemned universally by Western countries, other nations, jurists, human rights organizations, certain members of the U.S. Congress, by military prosecutors themselves, but not by our Canadian government. And Guantanamo Bay had been called everything from an offshore concentration camp to a legal black hole by the, the British Court of Appeal. What it is, it has become a symbol of much that is wrong with our society. It is a complex of brutal prisons where hundreds of men and, and some children initially from all over the world have been held by the U.S. government under incredibly inhuman conditions and incessant interrogation. And it is a symbol with which the Bush administration and now the Obama administration has brushed aside long-standing precepts of international and human rights conduct. It is a place without rules. And it is a place where a Canadian, Omar Khadr, has spent a quarter of his life 
where he has been arbitrarily detained, suffered unjust imprisonment, prolonged solitary confinement, torture and abuse. Yet successive Canadian governments, unlike our European allies, have failed to criticise Guantanamo Bay as being outside the rule of law. And yet I remind myself of my first meeting with Omar in Camp 5 some years ago in conditions that continue to haunt me. I should tell you this, I went into that place as a lawyer and I came out as a very, very sad father because I have a 15-year-old boy and I know that we treat children differently. My 15-year-old boy's views are very different than a 23-year-old man. I mean, it was just recently that I bought a snowblower. I felt like I was the only person in Canada to snowblower, certainly in my area. I felt very proud of myself. And my 15-year-old boy took it over, and I was happy he was doing the hard work. And then I get a frantic call from my wife telling me I should speak to him. Because what he has done, he has spent hours putting all the snow in one big bundle. And then he was going to snowboard off the roof into this bundle. (laughs) That's a 15-year-old boy. And Camp 5 is different from the cages you may have seen on TV. It's a, in my view, it's a haunting, windowless, concrete building surrounded by perimeters of of barbed wire in the desert. And it's designed for, as it's designed, the way it's designed, it's it's gloomy and it's absolutely still silent inside. And I first met Omar sitting in a cold, windowless cell, shackled from the waist to the concrete floor and handcuffed. And by then he'd been in solitary confinement for over two years, enduring crushing loneliness and abandonment by the world. He looked pale and ill. He was uncomfortable with his body aching all over. He looked like a little bird to me. The cell was frozen. You keep it cold. He was shivering. And what you have to understand is Omar Kader has been badly injured. He has he was shot twice in the back and he has huge gaping holes. He is blind in one eye and he is going blind in the other eye through shrapnel wounds. And for years... I have attempted to persuade our government to ask the Americans to allow him to have protective eyeglasses for his one remaining good eye from the the harsh lighting. And it was only two months ago that Omar finally got protective glasses. That is the extent of help we have given this young man. And I have been forewarned 
by the guards that Omar had withdrawn, to, withdrawn into himself, had not spoken to anyone for months, that he had given up all hope. And so I sat down and I started talking to him. And I talked to him. And I talked at him. I talked about myself, I talked about my wife, I talked about my kids, I talked about anything. And he didn't respond. And on the third day, I finally thought, I can't reach this young man. He's gone. And at some point, I became frustrated and I sort of opened my wallet. And what I did was I pulled out, no, I can't lose my wallet here. I pulled out a hockey card that each and every one of you has of your own children. And I passed it to him. It's my boy, Duncan, who's now 15. At the time, he was probably 10, 9, 10 years of age. And Omar stretched his hand out and took it in his hand and he started feeling it because he hadn't felt paper. At that point in time, he'd never had books, TV, nothing. He'd lived in a, a vacuum of emptiness. And it was, it was that card that engaged Omar to leave the recesses of his mind and cross that bridge, that mental bridge, to speak to me. And I, it's, and as meritorious as that is to tell you that I persuaded him to talk to me, I can't say that was a good thing. Because at least up in his mind he's safe. Joining the reality of that hellhole called Guantanamo, that is no joy. Because I would be leaving and he would be staying as well. And I've grown up with Omar myself. Of all the years I've been with Omar, I have never seen him walk other than being brought into a courtroom. Each and every time I'm with Omar, he's shackled. Shackled to the floor. Year after year. And I sit in one of these chairs, and he sits in the chair next to me. And we're surrounded by guards. There's no privacy. And over the years, I've watched him grow from a, a young boy of 17 up to a man He's almost 24 years of age. Big tall guy. And I sit head to head with him. And I touch him with my hands. I rub his hands. I rub his shoulder. But I've never seen him unchained. And when I look at him, I think of my own children. And I say, how can this be? How could we all be so silent? Where are the voices? And yet every government, every Western government, Sweden, Britain, France, Germany, Spain, and more, when they heard of the horrors of Guantanamo Bay, they, they protested and demanded that each and every one of their nationals be returned. And that was done. And yet Canada has remained silent. 
In Canada, I recall former Foreign Affairs Minister Peter McKay, I've also recalled the Prime Minister himself, all saying that they'd been assured by the Americans that he'd been treated well. Well, I don't know what planet he's on. Because the record is full. The record is complete. The record is there for any one of you to go on Google and check it out. That torture has been endemic in Guantanamo Bay. And that Omar Khadr, we filed an affidavit before the Supreme Court about Omar Khadr and his abuse. And our Supreme Court of Canada ruled that his that the, the Americans had violated the International Convention on Torture and the Geneva Conventions and the treatment of Omar Khadr and that Canada had been complicit in that conduct. And think about that. How can we sell ourselves as a, as a human nation when our government on our behalf has been accused of being complicit in torture? No greater accusation. And, and in... And I recall... How much time do I have left? Five minutes. I recall talking and looking at Omar's body and writing down some of the tortures that he experienced and compared it to other people's experiences. Horrors. We have medical records showing that as soon as he regained consciousness, he'd been unconscious for three days, that he was subject to interrogations in the Bagram Hospital, which has been described as no more than a torture centre. In fact, Omar said that the, the prevalent sound in that hospital was the cries of pain and the screams from torture. And we have documents, and the court saw those documents, that showed that Omar Kara was made to walk with buckets of water up and down a hallway at night time called the night shift. And notes talking about how his wounds would be seeping. We know that Omar Kara, as part of a technique, was made stretched in between doorways, standing on his feet like this. And when he urinated because he couldn't hold in, he needed to pee, he was let down and his head was used to clean up the urine. And you know who tells me that? It's not just records. We go on to CBC, check some of the documentaries. We have a, a talk show called Damien Corsetti. We'll talk to you about it. I did terrible things, he says. And Damien can't live with himself. Damien twists and twitches because I've crossed him, cross-examined him and spoken to him many times. And he's got a little tattoo on his tummy that says, I'm a monster. And he acknowledges he did monstrous things along with others. And yet, our government still persists in saying, we take the Americans at their word. And so recently... As I conclude, in our last pre-trial motion, before this so-called judge and this military commission process, which is not a court-martial, it's not an ordinary court of law, 
It's a, a, a creation just for detainees in Guantanamo Bay. The judge allowed any confessional statements Omar had made in the Bagram Hospital, absent lawyers, absent any rights, while being tortured. And anything he said in, in Guantanamo, they're allowed to come into court. Torture evidence. And I knew then that we didn't have a chance, as I'd known a long time. And then I had to tell him, Canada is not going to ask for your return. The Canadian Supreme Court made a declaration suggesting that Canada should do that. The Federal Court of Appeal ordered Canada to do that, to request his return, like other countries. I said, you are going to be here for the rest of your life unless I can make a deal with the government. And until then, the U.S. government had always persisted, insisted that they would settle for 40 years' imprisonment. And then, at the last moment, they, we did a deal. The deal was he would agree to eight years in prison but only would have to serve one more year in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And Omar Carter didn't want to do that. And I took a long time trying to talk to him about what decision he has to make. I said to him, when you come back to Canada, there are those who will think you're a terrorist and you can't change their mind. And others will understand that you had no choice. And you can show the Canadian public what a beautiful young man you are. Because in my experience, I have never represented anybody who has such humanity as Omar Khadr. I've never heard him criticize anybody. It shocks me that I have met torture victims and how through their abuse and torture, instead of being angry, they appear to become more human. So, if we fail to act for someone such as Omar Khadr, what we do is we leave the door for others to follow and be treated like him. And so as I conclude my talk, and I thank you, and I await your questions, embedded in my talk today has been the responsibility, the imperative, to stand out against injustice. I would say to you that our responsibility as human beings is to speak out to the reality of inhumanity and to speak out against the moral hollowness of political inaction. Because the only crime that I would suggest is equal to willful inhumanity is the crime of indifference, silence and forgetting. Thank you.